And now I'm pleased to introduce tonight's guest, Mr. James Glick. James Glick was born in New York City and graduated from Harvard. For 10 years, he worked as an editor and reporter for the New York Times. His first book, Chaos, was a National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize finalist and a national bestseller. His next books include the best-selling biographies, Genius, The Life and Science of Richard Feynman and Isaac Newton, both shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize, as well as Faster and What Just Happened. They have been translated into 25 languages. His most recent book, as I mentioned, is called The Information, A Theory, A History, a flood. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. James Glick. There was a, an interesting essay, opinion piece in the New York Times this weekend. Uh, some, of you may have, some of you may have seen it. And uh, I think it's a sort of morality tale, so I want to say something about it. It's by a, a man, a social psychologist named Zick Rubin. I didn't clip it, that's why I'm looking here, and it's titled, How the Internet Tried to Kill Me. And it begins, when I Googled myself last month, well, you laugh, but how many people here have never Googled themselves? Okay, only two people were brave enough to raise their hands. He Googled himself and he found a Wikia item which is like a Wikipedia item, but a little bit different. And it said, Zick Rubin, 1944 to 1997, was an American social psychologist. <laughs> and, he, and he says, this was a little disconcerting. I really was born in 1944, and I really was an American social psychologist. But to the very best of my knowledge, I wasn't dead. So. Then hilarity ensues. Um, he, he logs on to Wikia and edits his own entry, which, which you know, you're not supposed to do because you're biased. <laughs> um, biased. But, I, but in this case, I think we can, we can forgive him. A day later, he logs on again and somebody has changed it back. And so now... An edit war ensues. That's the technical term. He doesn't use it. Wikipedia is famous for its edit wars. This happens a lot. Um, there's never been an edit war over President Obama's birthplace. But, um, because that's clear enough. But uh, when I was working on, when I was doing reporting on Wikipedia, which I discuss a little bit in the book, um, there was a big edit war that ran for months on whether the human being associated with a cat should be referred to as its owner or its caregiver. <laughs> All right, anyway, Zick Rubin talks to the owner. It turns out that the, the reason people are so insistent on um, declaring him dead is that they have a, a printed source. The Penguin Dictionary of Biography, third edition, 2001, said, gave his date of death. And um, so on the one hand, they had a printed source, and on the other hand, they had a, a human being who claimed to have personal knowledge. But <laughs> so again, he was frustrated. And, and it turns out that the printed source uh, extends to its fourth edition, published just last year or the year before, which still has him being dead. 
And the end of the story is that Wikia corrects the error and everybody's happy. But the headline was how the internet tried to kill me. I don't think that's right. It seems to me that the book tried to kill him, that the, the internet brought him back to life. And um, I think there's a message, I think there's a message there. I think we're entering a period of adjustment where we're a little confused about the state of things. Here, um, all of those years, knowledge seemed to be fixed, printed in books. The, Encyclop the Encyclopedia Britannica was considered an authority. Wikipedia is not. Wikipedia is, is famously untrustworthy. Mr. Rubin, as far as we can tell in the end, is not at all upset about the, the existence of this book, which is in libraries all over the world. And it, the book still says he's dead. He didn't know about the book. It was there for 10 years. He can Google himself, but he couldn't, he never had occasion to go around to libraries looking himself up, and, and apparently nobody he knew noticed and told him. So it's only the ubiquitous, easily accessible knowledge that actually matters to him. All right, I'll, there may be more about that later, but now, now I want to um, read a bit from my book. I'm going to read from the beginning in hopes of answering the first question, which is, what is information that a person should write a whole book about it? I begin in, really in the middle of the story, like this. After 1948, which was the crucial year, people thought they could see the clear purpose that inspired Claude Shannon's work, but that was hindsight. He saw it differently. My mind wanders around and I conceive of different things day and night. Like a science fiction writer, I'm thinking, what if it were like this? As it happened, 1948 was when the Bell Telephone Laboratories announced the invention of a tiny electronic semiconductor an amazingly simple device that could do anything a vacuum tube could do, and more efficiently. It was a crystalline sliver, so small that a hundred would fit in the palm of a hand. In May, scientists formed a committee to come up with a name, and the committee passed out paper ballots to senior engineers in Murray Hill, New Jersey, listing some choices. Semiconductor triode, iototron, Transistor, that was a hybrid of varistor and transconductance. Transistor, of course, won out. Bell Labs declared in a press release, it may have far-reaching significance in electronics and electrical communication. And for once, the reality surpassed the hype. The transistor sparked the revolution in electronics, setting the technology on its path of miniaturization and ubiquity and soon won the Nobel Prize for its three chief inventors. For the laboratory, it was the jewel in the crown. But it was only the second most significant development of that year. The transistor was only hardware. An invention more profound and more fundamental came in a monograph spread across 79 pages of the Bell System Technical Journal in July and October. No one bothered with a press release. It carried a title both simple and grand, 
a mathematical theory of communication. And the message was hard to summarize, but it was a fulcrum around which the world began to turn. Like the transistor, this development also involved a neologism, the word bit, chosen in this case not by committee, but by the lone author, a 32-year-old named Claude Shannon. The bit now joined the inch, the pound, the quart, and the minute as a determinate quantity, a fundamental unit of measure. But measuring what? A unit for measuring information, Shannon wrote, as though there were such a thing, measurable and quantifiable as information. Shannon supposedly belonged to the Bell Labs Mathematical Research Group, but mostly he kept to himself when the group left the New York headquarters for shiny new space in the New Jersey suburbs, he stayed behind, haunting a cubbyhole in the old building, a 12-story sandy brick hulk on West Street facing the edge of Greenwich Village. He disliked commuting, and he liked the downtown neighborhood where he could hear jazz clarinetists in late-night clubs. He was flirting shyly with a young woman who worked in Bell Labs' microwave research group in the former Nabisco factory across the street. People considered him a smart young man. Fresh from MIT, he had plunged into the laboratory's war work, first developing an automatic fire control director for anti-aircraft guns, then focusing on the theoretical underpinnings of secret communication, cryptography, working out a mathematical proof of the security of the so-called X system, the telephone hotline between Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt. So now, his managers were willing to leave him alone, even though they didn't understand exactly what he was working on. AT&T at mid-century didn't demand instant gratification from its research division. So much of modern science bore directly or indirectly on the company's mission, which was vast, monopolistic, almost all-encompassing. Still, broad as it was, the telephone company's core subject matter remained just out of focus. By 1948, more than 125 million conversations passed daily through the Bell System's 138 million miles of cable and 31 million telephone sets. The Bureau of the Census reported these facts under the rubric of communications in the United States. But they were crude measures of communication. The census also counted several thousand broadcasting stations for radio and a few dozen for television. Along with newspapers, books, pamphlets, and the mail, the post office counted its letters and parcels. But what exactly did the Bell system carry? Counted in what units? Not conversations, surely, nor words, nor certainly characters. Perhaps it was just electricity. The company's engineers were electrical engineers. Everyone understood that electricity served as a surrogate for sound, waves in the air entering the telephone mouthpiece and converted into electrical waveforms. The Bell system had hired its first mathematician in 1897. 
Shannon himself, as a student, had never been quite able to decide whether to become an engineer or a mathematician. For Bell Labs, he was both, willy-nilly, practical about circuits and relays, but happiest in a realm of symbolic abstraction. He liked games and puzzles. Secret codes entranced him, beginning when he was a boy, reading Edgar Allan Poe. He gathered threads like a magpie. As a first-year research assistant at MIT, he worked on a 100-ton proto-computer, Vannevar Bush's differential analyzer, which could solve equations with great rotating gears, shafts, and wheels. At 22, he wrote a dissertation that applied a 19th century idea, George Boole's algebra of logic, to the design of electrical circuits, logic and electricity, a peculiar combination. In 1943, the English mathematician and codebreaker Alan Turing visited Bell Labs on a cryptographic mission and met Shannon sometimes over lunch, where they traded speculation on the future of artificial thinking machines. Shannon wants to feed not just data to a brain, but cultural things, Turing exclaimed. He wants to play music to it. Meanwhile, Shannon began paying special attention to television signals from a peculiar point of view, wondering whether their content could be somehow compacted or compressed to allow for faster transmission. Logic and circuits crossbred to make a new hybrid thing. So did codes and genes. In his solitary way, seeking a framework to connect his many threads, Shannon began assembling a theory for information. The raw material lay all around, glistening and buzzing in the landscape of the early 20th century, letters and messages, sounds and images, news and instructions, figures and facts, signals and signs, a hodgepodge of related species. They were on the move by post or wire or electromagnetic wave, but no one word denoted all that stuff. Off and on, Shannon wrote to Vannevar Bush at MIT in 1939, I have been working on an analysis of some of the fundamental properties of general systems for the transmission of intelligence. Intelligence, that was a flexible term, very old. It had taken on other meanings, though. A few engineers, especially in the telephone labs, began speaking of information. They used the word in a way suggesting something technical, quantity of information, or measure of information. Shannon adopted this usage. For the purposes of science, information had to mean something special. Three centuries earlier, the new discipline of physics couldn't proceed until Isaac Newton appropriated words that were ancient and vague, force, mass, motion, and even time, and gave them new meanings. Newton made these terms into quantities, suitable for use in mathematical formulas. 
Until then, motion, for example, had been just as soft and inclusive a term as information. For Aristotelians, things in motion included a peach ripening, a child growing, a body decaying. That was too much. Most varieties of motion had to be tossed out before Newton's laws could be written and the scientific revolution could succeed. In the 19th century, the word energy began to undergo a similar transformation. Natural philosophers adapted a word meaning vigor or intensity. They mathematicized it, giving energy its fundamental place in the physicist's view of nature. It was the same with information. A rite of purification became necessary. And then, when it was made simple, distilled, counted in bits, information was found to be everywhere. Shannon's theory made a bridge between information and uncertainty, between information and entropy, between information and chaos. It led to compact disks and fax machines, computers and cyberspace, Moore's Law and all the world's silicon alleys. Information processing was born, along with information storage and information retrieval. People began to name a successor to the Iron Age and the Steam Age. Marshall McLuhan remarked in 1967, man the food gatherer reappears incongruously as information gatherer. He wrote this an instant too soon in the first dawn of computation and cyberspace. We can see now that information is what our world runs on, the blood and the fuel, the vital principle. It pervades the sciences from top to bottom, transforming every branch of knowledge. Information theory began as a bridge from mathematics to electrical engineering, and from there to computing. Now even biology has become an information science, a subject of messages, instructions, and code. Genes encapsulate information and enable procedures for reading it in and writing it out. Life spreads by networking. The body itself is an information processor. Memory resides not just in brains, but in every cell. No wonder genetics bloomed along with information theory. DNA is the quintessential information molecule, the most advanced message processor at the cellular level. An alphabet and a code, six billion bits to form a human being. The evolutionary theorist Richard Dawkins declares, what lies at the heart of every living thing is not a fire, not a warm breath, not a spark of life. It is information, words, instructions. If you want to understand life, don't think about vibrant, throbbing gels and oozes. Think about information technology. The cells of an organism are nodes in a richly interwoven communications network, transmitting and receiving, coding and decoding. Evolution itself embodies an ongoing exchange of information between organism and environment. Economics is recognizing itself as an information science, now that money itself is completing a developmental arc 
from matter to bits. Stored in computer memory and magnetic strips, world finance coursing through the global nervous system. Even when money seemed to be material treasure, heavy in pockets and ship's holds and bank vaults, it always was information. Coins and notes, shekels and cowries were all just short-lived technologies for tokenizing information about who owns what. And atoms? Matter has its own coinage, and the hardest science of all, physics, seemed to have reached maturity. At Bell Labs, Claude Shannon was not thinking about physics. Particle physicists did not need bits. And then, all at once, they did. Increasingly, the physicists and the information theorists are one and the same. The bit is a fundamental particle of a different sort, not just tiny, but abstract, a binary digit, a flip-flop, a yes or no. It's insubstantial. Yet, as scientists finally come to understand information, they wonder whether it may be primary, more fundamental than matter itself. They suggest that the bit is the irreducible kernel and that information forms the very core of existence. Bridging the physics of the 20th and 21st century, John, John Archibald Wheeler, the last surviving collaborator of both Einstein and Bohr, put this manifesto in oracular monosyllables, it from bit. He wrote, information gives rise to every it, every particle, every field of force, even the space-time continuum itself. All things physical are information theoretic in origin, and this is a participatory universe. The whole universe is thus seen as a computer, a cosmic information processing machine. When photons and electrons and other particles interact, what are they really doing? Exchanging bits, transmitting quantum states, processing information. The laws of physics are the algorithms. Every burning star, every silent nebula, every particle leaving its ghostly trace in a cloud chamber is an information processor. The universe computes its own destiny. Tomorrow, Wheeler declares, we will have learned to understand and express all of physics in the language of information. As the role of information grows beyond anyone's reckoning, it grows to be too much. TMI, people now say. We have information fatigue, anxiety, and glut. We have met the devil of information overload and his impish underlings the computer virus, the busy signal, the dead link, the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> All this, too, is due in its roundabout way to Shannon. Everything changed so quickly. John Robertson Pierce, the Bell Labs engineer who had come up with the word transistor, mused afterward, it is hard to picture the world before Shannon as it seemed to those who lived in it. It is difficult to recover innocence, ignorance, and lack of understanding. <coughs> Yet the past does come back into focus. In the beginning was the word, according to John. We are the species that named itself Homo sapiens, 
the one who knows. And then, after reflection, amended that to Homo sapiens sapiens. The greatest gift of Prometheus to humanity was not fire, after all. Numbers, too, chiefest of sciences, I invented for them, and the combining of letters, creative mother of the muses' arts, with which to hold all things in memory. The alphabet was a founding technology of information. The telephone, the fax machine, the calculator, and ultimately the computer are only the latest innovations devised for saving, manipulating, and communicating knowledge. Our culture has absorbed a working vocabulary for these useful inventions. We speak of compressing data, aware that this is quite different from compressing a gas. We know about streaming information, parsing it, sorting it, matching it, and filtering it. Our furniture includes iPads and plasma displays. Our skills include texting and Googling. We are endowed, we are expert, so we see information in the foreground. But it has always been there. It pervaded our ancestors' world, too, taking forms from solid to ethereal, granite gravestones and the whispers of courtiers, the punched card, the cash register, the 19th century difference engine, the wires of telegraphy, all played their parts in weaving the spider web of information to which we cling. Each new information technology, in its own time, set off blooms of storage and transmission. From the printing press came new species of information organizers, dictionaries, cyclopedias, almanacs, compendiums of words, classifiers of facts, trees of knowledge. Hardly any information technology goes obsolete. Each new one throws its predecessors into relief. Thus, Thomas Hobbes, in the 17th century, resisted his era's new media hype. The invention of printing, though ingenious, compared with the invention of letters, is no great matter. Up to a point, he was right. Every new medium transforms the nature of human thought. In the long run, history is the story of information becoming aware of itself. Can morality be quantified in terms of bits? I would say it's orthogonal, to, to use mathematicians' jargon. You may be trying to ask more than that. One can ask, can art be reduced to bits? Can anything that we really care about be reduced to bits? And um, just in case that's lurking behind your question, I'll, I'll address it for a minute. Claude Shannon, in creating information theory, was emphatic about saying that his theory had nothing to do with meaning, much less morality. He was interested, for his engineering purposes, in messages and signals that might correspond to things in the real world or might not. They might be true, they might be false, they might be entirely nonsense. And then in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of information theory, there was a lot of excitement about it. At first, just in, 
in engineering circles, but engineering circles were, were growing pretty fast then, and they were turning rapidly into computing circles, and the general public was suddenly very interested in the 1950s in computing, and information theory became a sort of buzzword, and one of the stories I tell in the book is the story of some interdisciplinary meetings that involved not just the mathematicians and engineers, but also um, sociologists, uh, anthropologists, Margaret Mead participated in these meetings, linguists, and um, they would ask questions in the same spirit of the question you just asked. Uh, when Shannon said meaning is irrelevant, they would say, well then, you're not talking about information. You're talking about a theory of beeps. All we care about is meaning. Um, all of this comes back into the story in our time, I think. I'm, I mean, I seem to be making a big speech here when I know more of you have questions and, and you want to get to that bucket. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. There's much more to say about that, about meaning and information in our time. Think of the 21st century as the, the century of uh, biology, and so it was interesting to hear you say that um, it's also about information. What, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the implications of understanding biology, the, the gushiest and least mathematical, uh, at least that's the way I always thought about it, of sciences becoming information about bits. Yeah. Well, it's, first of all, it's not so gushy anymore. A, a, lot, of, a lot of biologists uh, will tell you that they've had to learn quite a bit of mathematics just to function. But, um, but yes, I know what you mean. And, and it, it's really, it's, I've, I found this piece of the story really fascinating, that um, the discoveries of Watson and Crick, when they um, were racing to figure out what was inside the chromosome, what molecule was actually storing information, I'll use the word, about, I'll say, I'll skip the word, storing the traits that are passed from one person or organism to its descendants. Everybody knew that, that some things were hereditable, but, and everybody was, was pretty sure that they had um, narrowed down the place to the chromosomes. But the problem seemed to be, what exactly is it in squishy biological terms, in chemical terms, in molecular terms? And with the help of, of uh, increasingly powerful microscopes and some smart detective work, Watson and Crick figured out the double helix structure of DNA. And you're all familiar with that story. It's, a, it's been told many times and very well. I, for, to me, it's an information story because um, to make sense of it, and we can document this. I mean, there's a, there's a paper trail in the decades that follow. They had to decipher what we all nowadays call the genetic code. And we call it that without giving the word a second's thought. But code is not a metaphor. Code is exactly what DNA is about. DNA is using an alphabet, a chemical alphabet with four characters, to store information. There's no other way to talk about it. And the information 
is uh, in the form of instructions to proteins to do various things, to make things and to, to begin processes and to turn processes off. And um, you can see the language of information theory and the language the, of information more generally um, infiltrating the field and becoming absolutely indispensable. There's no other way to talk about what's going on in genetics but in the language of information. That's why Dawkins um, said what he said in the passage that I read. And the same is true in other areas of biology. Uh, people who study cells talk about intracellular communication and evolution is an information science too. And um, I won't give any more examples now, but there are more examples in the book. My question is about the de facto nature of, or the de facto censorship that comes along with having so much information out there. Um, what is your opinion on, on how we should best process information since it's, it's at this point impossible to have one centralized source deal with all of it? This is the predicament in which we find ourselves and I'm interested that you think of it in terms of censorship. That's, that's pretty harsh, but I understand, I understand what you mean. But look at, um, Look again at Zick Rubin and his, uh, the report of his death. The fact that troubled him so much, I mean, it was a mistake, it was wrong, it needed to be filtered out or corrected, but the fact existed in books for a decade and um, we can see now that it had actually vanished. It's an illusion that I think we need to see past that before the electronic age where all of the, f the fuzzy stuff started whizzing around our heads, information living in the cloud and in that amorphous place called cyberspace, that before this time, information lived in a nice, um, useful, reliable place. Actually, People have been complaining since the invention of the printing press that there were problems with information in books, that one of the problems was that there were just too many books. Um, nobody could hope to keep up. And another problem is that books, when you store them in a library, effectively vanish. That a book on a library shelf, well, everyone knows, every, every librarian knows uh, to this day that a misshelved book is lost. Uh, you might as well burn the book as Miss Shelva. I'm not exaggerating, I don't think. But, but even I, somewhere I quote um, um, a Victorian era mathematician complaining about the British Library and, and saying all of those um, thousands of yards of books are effectively lost if they aren't properly indexed and if they aren't searchable. This is, um, so, yes, there's a kind of censorship that comes from our having too much information available and our having instantaneous, uh, seemingly almost infinite access to source material. But um, in a way it's, only um, different in, in kind. It's not 
I don't think it's any worse, I guess. Uh, we, need to, we need to find new ways of coping, but the new ways are not so different from the old ways. They've always involved looking for ways to search and looking for ways to filter out the stuff that's wrong or useless. I, enjoy, I enjoyed your chaos book very much, and I'm just very curious about um, this being such an important information, being such an important uh, subject. What was the genesis of, of your writing of this book? What made you, you know, want to write this and, and explain specifically, I mean, why did you write this book? Um, I've been working on this book for a long time, and and thinking about it for even longer. And um, well, you mentioned the Chaos book, which was my first book. And it happens that it was when I was working on that book that I first heard scientists, some of these young Chaos scientists, talk about information theory. It was a part of their it was a part of their toolkit. And I remember being struck by the idea that there was such a thing as information theory. I had never heard of it. And um, I bought Claude Shannon's book. The articles, his articles of mathematical theory of communication were soon published in book form as the mathematical theory of communication. They changed the title by one word. And it has a, an introduction by Warren Weaver that's very readable. And um, this was 20 years ago, so I couldn't order it from any online bookseller. <laughs> I guess I ordered it from, maybe it's Princeton University. No, it's a university press. Anyway, um, the mathematics are very interesting and, and, and apply to some problems that, are very, uh, that aren't just technical. For example, redundancy in human language. There, there are things that, there are things that that really appealed to me. And, I, and I've always had it in, in mind that here's this engineering theory that in a genuine way underlies all of our technology. And we're mostly not aware of it, but the implications are real. It's worth understanding its relation to the stuff we use and the way we use it. I mean, I, I think it's not, just, it's not just an accident that it works. And then um, it's also, it all, it all uh, becomes one story. The questions that people have been asking already tonight about, um, about morality and censorship and, and about the flood of information and about the problem of the problems of, of coping with so much uh, have echoes in Shannon's work. We need to think about what it means to remove meaning from information for the purposes of engineers and, and how you can then reconnect this stuff, which is very real, called information, to the stuff we care about, which we use fuzzier words for, like knowledge and wisdom. You know, just like Claude Shannon came along and defined information, and Newton before that defined force and mass and velocity, you think somewhere along the line there may be a quantum jump in human thinking where we are able to separate between information and what fuzzy words, like you said, meaning and knowledge and all that, and all of a sudden that, in, that 
thing, thing becomes quantifiable, that this is knowledge and it has a unit and it has a definable quantity. Hard for me to speculate. You're, you've pushed beyond the limits of my imagination, I'm afraid. I, I became a scientist in the 1970s in a time when it was possible to read and digest pretty much all the literature in your field. And then in the 80s, we started to watch it spin out of control, and by the 90s, it was utterly laughable. And today, you know, the rate of people rediscovering the wheel and doing research that's already been done before is becoming kind of staggering. Um, where do you think all this stuff is headed to when, when the kind of assimilation efficiency starts to get so low with this information? What's the future hold? Are we going to enter into a new age of kind of darkness and stupidity where we're just redoing things over and over again? <laughs> Good final question, but let me, and let me challenge you. Are you sure that that was true in the 1970s, that a, that a single person could assimilate all the information in his or her field? Because I think that in the 1970s, there were people who would have, who would have asked the same question and said, you know, I remember in the 1940s when a person could pretty much know everything there was to know in, in a person's field. And then things started speeding up in the 50s and 60s. And now in the 70s, we have... What did they have in the 70s? Well, they were starting to have fax machines. Well, um, every new information technology has brought the same complaint. Um, Leibniz complained in the, in the 18th century that there were too many books and this was going to be the death of, of natural philosophy. No one would be, would be able to keep up with everything. If there were 10,000 books in the world, that was more books than any person could read in a lifetime. Um, and there was a genuine sense of despair about that, which is not to, not to make light of our own current sense of despair, which is very similar. It's all the more true now uh, when, when any one of us can communicate with billions of people that, that the possibility of keeping up of, of being content with having a, a, complete, a complete knowledge of anything seems entirely to have vanished. Nevertheless, I believe, and I can't justify it, I'll just say that I'm kind of an optimist, that as ever, we individuals will find ways to cope. We're finding them now. I think you've all, you've all given some examples already. So, Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Zokolo, for, uh, for having me here, and um, good night. <laughs>